Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to the one given by Stephen already. I had an incident a couple of weeks ago that reminded me of one of my favourite stories in the Bible. So uh, let let me set the scene. Uh, My car had gone in for an MOT. That's not the bit that links into the Bible story. Uh, But I got a call from the garage and it failed its MOT. Uh, Nothing major, just a few little bits of work they needed to do before they could sign it off. But they said to me, Tom, uh, we need to do some jobs. We're pretty rammed at the moment. You can't have your car back until Thursday evening. So I was like, this is a bit of a nuisance. Um, I've got stuff planned, but fine, I can adapt around it. And it was half term week and we'd arranged for my kids to spend a few days with my parents who live over in Sheffield. And I thought this will be easy, you know, just drive over the Woodhead Pass. No, without a car, I have to figure out the uh, British railway system that I'm, I've not been too familiar with in recent years, but we make it work. I get them uh, into Piccadilly. I get them over to Sheffield. My mum picks us up at the station. Uh, it's all fine. Spend a bit of time with my parents and then head back on my own, get a train back into Piccadilly, uh, and then I, I got the metro back to um, East Didsbury, which is a little way away from my house, but I thought, you know, it's a nice day, I can walk, but by this time, we're getting into the evening, I'm a, I'm a bit tired, I'm a bit kind of ready to rest, um, but the other part of it, of course, is having the kids at my mum's meant that it was an opportunity to make some plans with Emma, so we had an evening plan, we were going to get a takeaway, we had kind of a, a, a nice plan for what we were going to do with the evening, so I want to get back, I'm looking forward to it, but there's also this tiredness, the takeaways in my mind as well, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm ready for it, you know, you know that feeling after a busy day when there's a takeaway on the horizon, so uh, I'm walking home, I'm heading up the street, and I, I look across, and when I look across the road, I see there's a man, uh, and this man, he's not standing up, he's lying down, he's unconscious, he's on the corner of two streets. In that moment, I've got a choice to make, right? And the choice is this, my takeaway, my home, my, my restful evening, all that I've got planned, I can lay that aside, I can sacrifice that and go and see if this man needs help. I mean, he's unconscious, he obviously needs help, but see what I can do, see how I can sort things out for him. Or I can do a mental calculation and think, actually, this is quite a busy road. Actually, there's lots of people. I can see some people behind me. I can just go home. I can carry on with my plans. Someone else will deal with this, and maybe someone will have some medical training. Maybe someone will have a bit more sense than me in terms of what actually needs to be done. I've got to choose, haven't I? Do, I? do I help or do I not help? And I wonder if you've ever been in that position. I wonder if you've ever had the opportunity to do something that you know in your gut, in your spirit, is the right thing to do. You know it's a thing that God wants you to do. You know it's a thing that you need to do. But to do it means a bit of sacrifice. To do it means laying something down giving something up that you would otherwise want. I wonder maybe if you've ever been on the other end of that kind of scenario. I wonder if you've ever been the person who's been in need of help, who's been unable to sort a situation out for yourself, and you've received the help 
of a stranger. Someone else has inconvenienced themselves. Someone else has gone out of their way to help you. I wonder how many of you have guessed what Bible story I'm going to link this to. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that Jesus told, one of the best-known parables in the Gospel accounts. I want to read this parable to us today, and I just want to look at the characters in it and look at, um, for them, what reasons they had not to help, what reasons they had to just uh, ignore the need that was before them, and also have a look at what reasons there were to help. And as we do it, I want you to have in mind the notice that Stephen's just given about Give Big Sunday, because all of us before us in the next couple of weeks have a great opportunity to help. There are real needs before us, and we have a decision to make. How do we respond to the needs? So uh, if you've got a Bible with you, please open them to Luke chapter 10, uh, and I'm going to read from verse 30 to 37. If you've not brought your Bible with you, don't worry, because I've got the verses behind me as well. So Luke 10 from verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, putting on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, this is the person Jesus was talking to, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You've probably heard that story before. I'd imagine it's familiar to most of us. Let me just give you a little bit of background to paint the picture of what's happening. So it's set on a road between two cities, Jerusalem and Jericho. And this was one of the main routes that people would use if they wanted to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city. It was a popular place for people to go. Often during the feasts and festivals, loads of people went up to Jerusalem. This is the road that they would have used. In fact, we see as we read the Gospels, Jesus himself on numerous occasions travels on this road. It's about 17 miles in length between the two cities. And during the 17 miles, there's a descent of 3,000 feet. So uh, it's a fairly uh, steady decline from Jerusalem to Jericho. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jerusalem described as the city on a hill. Well, imagine that. Imagine a city on a hill and imagine a city not on a hill. The road between them is going to be a slope isn't it? And uh, besides this road, there were loads of uh, different types of terrain. There'd be kind of rocky areas, there might be some trees, but it was a, a road that was notorious for being a hangout 
for, for bandits. So you have different groups of thieves and troublemakers who would hide out along the road, and they were known to attack travellers. It was a done thing because the, the bandits would know there'll be a steady stream of people travelling this road. We can get away with it here. So what Jesus has described in this story is quite a realistic scenario for people who hear it. It's, it's like Jesus had said uh, a story about someone wandering into a certain uh, area of Manchester late at night on their own getting mugged and their phone getting nicked. And you hear the story and you're actually, yeah, in, in that bit of Manchester, that, uh, I can see that happening. Well, on this road, people would say, yeah, I, I can see that happening. I can see someone getting robbed. I can see someone getting stripped, getting beaten and left half for dead. This is not an uh, unrealistic scenario at all. So this man who's got attacked is in quite a perilous situation because if, if he's half dead, on the street, he's in a predicament that he can do nothing about. He's quite a long way from help. If this road is 17 miles in length, we don't know he was exactly halfway, but he'd likely be at least a few miles from Jerusalem and a few miles from Jericho. And uh, the state he's in, he can't get to a place where they would be help. Uh, he, he doesn't have any stuff on him. He can't uh, summon a taxi. He can't call an ambulance. There's not a lot he can do for himself. He's relying for his survival on somebody else who's passing by, seeing him, having mercy on him, and choosing to help him. Well, thankfully for the man, there are a few people also on the road with him who walk past, so there's some opportunities for people to help. And the first person who walks past is a priest. And the priests in that day, they were religious workers. Their jobs was working in the temple in Jerusalem. These were the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and they'd been set apart from all the other people and given this job. You guys work in the temple. This is what you do. So he was a respected official. He was a senior guy. Lots of people in the nation would look up to him. Whenever they went to the temple, he'd be one of the people there doing the work, wearing all the uniform for the temple. Maybe an equivalent today might be a senior bishop or something like that. Imagine a senior bishop wearing the robes and the rest of the bishop uniform walking down the street and everyone would look, there'd be this sense of, okay, this is a, a person of significance. This is a man of God. He seems such an obvious person to help. Maybe the guy in his half-dead state, maybe he caught a glimpse and thought, oh, good, good, a priest is coming. I'm definitely going to get some help now. Well, the priest doesn't help, as we saw in the story. And I started thinking about why. Why is it that a man like this would choose not to help when there's an opportunity before him? I came up with two possible reasons. So reason number one is I would imagine he's got a lot of other stuff going on in his life. He's a busy guy. He's probably quite tired. You see, this road, the way the story was set, it's in the direction from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the priest had been in Jerusalem. What would he have been doing in Jerusalem? Almost certainly he'd have been working at the temple. The way they organised the priests is all the priests in the country, they divided them into 24 teams and then they did a week rotation. So uh, twice a year each group of priests had to go and do their work in the temple. And when it was their turn, they had to do everything that needed doing in the temple. And it was prestigious, it was important, but it was also hectic. It was busy, they had a lot to do. He'd have been working flat out 
for the last week. And by the end of it, he'd be like pretty exhausted, I'd imagine, and ready to get home. The rest of the year, they had loads to do in their hometowns and villages that they came from. There'd be pastoral work, helping people who had needs. There'd be administrative and organisational work. They'd be wanting to help the people in their communities follow God. They'd also have personal stuff going on, probably uh, land to tend and all sorts going on. And it's quite inconvenient. I don't know if you've ever found this. It's quite inconvenient, isn't it, to leave the stuff of normal life for a week and just go somewhere else and then come back to it. Anyone ever been on holiday and then got back to work on that Monday morning? And there's that sense of dread, isn't there, as you're imagining your email inbox and just how much stuff there will be. You know what I find, right? When I go on holiday for a week, it's not like I have a week's less stuff to do. It's just I have to do more stuff the next week to catch up. I'm going back into this world that's really hectic. Well, that's what this guy would have been Living in, he'd have had an exhausting week knowing he's got so much more to go back to. And then there's this guy on the street who's just inconvenient. He'll get in the way because it won't be quick. It's not just a kind of stoop down, hey, how you doing, mate? If he stops, he'll be caught up in the whole situation. He'll have to spend time with him until he's fine. He'll have to uh, pay attention to the wounds and do what he has to do there. He'll have to find somewhere to take the man to get help. And we don't know if the inn was in the right direction or not. Maybe he'd have to backtrack upon himself. And he'd have to give up his animal. He was probably like riding a donkey or something. But with this guy unable to walk, the priest would have had to use that to transport the man and then slow himself down to a walking pace. What happens then to all the stuff that he would have to do? And so it's inconvenient. I wonder if for us, one of the big reasons why we miss opportunities to help It's not that we don't want to help, it's just that they catch us at a bad time sometimes. Have you ever had this? Like, I could do this, but I've got so much going on, I just can't get my head into that right now. I just can't give that enough thought. I can't let my heart connect with that because life's busy, life's hectic, I'm exhausted. I just can't deal with that right now. And if we're honest, I think many of us would say most of the time is a bad time. The way we live our lives, we fill them so full that we just don't have space to deal with these kind of things. We don't have margin. Richard Swenson says that margin is the space between our load and our limits. It's something held in reserve for contingencies or unanticipated situations. How many of us live life where We've loaded ourselves right up to the limits and we don't have space anymore to deal with opportunities that God puts in our path. So that's one potential reason why this priest might not have helped. He had too much going on. I think reason number two why he might not have helped is just the scenarios that he could imagine. You can think as he's walking up to this guy and it's going in his head, but but what if? What if this is how it plays out? What if it goes that way? So, for example, right? imagine you're walking down a street where you know there are bandits. You know it's a place where bandits typically hang out. And then you see someone who's been attacked by bandits. That confirms your worst fear. You want to get out of there quickly because you know, hang on, this is a dangerous road. And if you stop and if you take time out of your journey, 
doesn't that just increase the chances that those bandits are going to come back? That you will be the next target, that you will be caught up in their way. And so you'll end up like this man, stripped, half dead, all your stuff stolen on the road. Here's another potential what if for the priest. Ceremonial uncleanness. So they had this kind of ritual code where there were certain things you were allowed to do and certain things you were not allowed to do. And if you did the stuff you weren't allowed to do, you became defiled and unclean. And the only way you got back to being clean was by going to the temple in Jerusalem and making a sacrifice. And near the top of the list of stuff you're not allowed to do is touch a dead body. Right, so you've got a guy half dead on the street, but as you're there in, in the priest's mind, you don't know if he's dead or not. And so if you go over, you're taking the risk. Yes, you might be able to help him, but what if he's dead already? What if it's too late? And you go over and you put your hand on his shoulder and you just move him to see if his eyes will open. And you realise, no, he's dead. And then you're ceremonially defiled. And what have you got to do? You're on your way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and you've got to turn around and go back to Jerusalem. And all that stuff you've got to deal with when you get home, that gets delayed. But also think of the humiliation of it. A few days ago, you were there in the temple as the person overseeing the sacrifices, who everyone would look to as, wow, they're running the show here. And then you turn up as like, yeah, I'm, I'm defiled, I'm shamed, and I need to make my own sacrifice. It would be a humiliating thing for him. I think our context is pretty different. Okay? I don't think many people in here are worried that if we take opportunities to help, we'll become ceremonially unclean. But I wonder if we do have a similar excuse where we say, but what if, dot, 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 and we put our own scenario at the end of it. We worry how things might go, and so we give ourselves a, a reason to not get involved with the needs before us. When it comes to giving financial help to people, one of the big ones that I hear people say is, but what if I give money and the person doesn't spend it wisely? What if they don't buy the things with the money that I wish they would buy with the money? What if they don't use it in a way that helps them? Now, I'm not saying let's all be naive here. Uh, I know that sometimes there are, are ways to give help that do um, have more wisdom than others, that do mitigate certain dangers, but I am slightly worried that we don't go uh, as far as finding a different way to help. We just say, well, what if this? So therefore, I'm not going to bother. I'll leave this need out there. And although I'm not saying we should be naive, I do think on the balance, if we've got a choice between a little bit of naivety and a little bit of cold cynicism... I think naivety wins. I think God's okay with a little bit of naivety. This Samaritan was a little bit naive in what he did. You can give him a, a whole logical explanation of why it was daft to stop, but he did it. I don't, I don't think God minds us being a bit naive. But let's not be cynical. Let's not be callous. Let's not insulate ourselves from helping where we can. Well, anyway, these reasons or some other reasons, they seem enough for the priest and so he passes on by on the other side of the street but thankfully for the man the priest wasn't the only person who came along and he's got his second chance for somebody to help him and this is a Levite 
And the Levites, who were they? They were the assistant priests. They were the other members of the tribe of Levi, not, not directly descended from Aaron. They would also work in the temple. They just didn't get all the cool glamorous jobs that the priests got to do. They were like the dog's bodies in the temple. And I think the same reasons that we've seen that the priest might have had would also apply to the Levi. He probably had stuff going on in his life as well. We're all busy, aren't we? We've all got lots going on. Uh, he might have had the same worries about ceremonial uncleanness or about bandits attacking him. But he's also got another reason to not help, and that's the social influence of the priest. I mean, think about it. If the road is sloping downhill, it means when you're walking along, you can see for miles and miles and miles ahead of you. You can see everything that's going on. So this Levite walking down the street, he'd have seen this man from a long distance. He'd have seen the priest come up to him. He'd have been wondering, what's going to happen here? Is the priest going to stop? Is he going to help him? And then he sees, no, the priest doesn't help him. The priest is just carrying on past. And remember, the priest was a man of influence. He'd have been the Levite's boss or on a, a peer level with the Levite's boss. He was senior to the Levite. And so when this Levite's approaching the situation and he's got the same set of calculations to make as the priest has, is this a prudent thing to do? Will helping the guy be the right thing to do here? He doesn't have to make them for himself. He can say, actually, somebody influential, somebody who I can look up to, has already assessed the pros and cons and has decided that not helping is the best thing to do. I can just follow his lead. And if anyone says anything, I can say, look, I, I saw the priest didn't help, but I wanted to defer to his wisdom. I just did what he did. I think we can do likewise, can't we? I think sometimes when it comes to opportunities to help or not help, we can just follow the lead of other people. I don't know what kind of family home you grew up in. I don't know whether there was a, a culture in your house growing up of, this is what we do, we help those in need. Or maybe there was a family home that just didn't pay much attention to helping others, that didn't really have an eye for the poor and needy. Maybe you've got particular friends who are just a bit dismissive and calloused about this stuff and have got their rationale about why you shouldn't help. Maybe influencers that you follow on social media just never talk about this stuff. Never engage in helping those in need. And when we see other people modelling a hardness of heart, sometimes that can become an excuse, can't it, that we follow. And it really shouldn't. And yet all of this combined proved too much for the Levite as well. And so he also walked by on the other side of the road. Which then brings us on to character number three, the unexpected hero of the story, the Samaritan. He did help, but he too would have had good reasons why he could have not helped. One of them is that it was personally costly to him. I mean, we've already talked about the time cost, but think about the financial cost as well. So he took this guy to an inn. He stayed overnight at the inn as well himself to make sure the guy was all right. And then he paid, and it says he paid two denarii. And if you convert that to today's money, it's probably around 150 to 200 pounds. That's what cash he had on him. And he said, right, okay, here's some cash. This will help him out. And then he said, and if it costs any more, if you have to spend any more getting him back to health, just charge it to my account. It's like he said, here's my credit card details, whatever it takes to make sure this man's okay. 
ring it up to my account. He gave, didn't he? Sacrificially. And when you give and when you help and when you want to make a difference in the lives of others, usually it does involve sacrifice. The whole idea of giving money is that you don't have that money anymore. And so you don't get to spend it on a thing you might have spent it on. Maybe that Samaritan was dreaming of a new extension that he was going to build onto his house that he can't do anymore because his credit cards come in from the inn from helping the guy. Wasn't quite to the same extent for me, but when I saw that guy on the side of the road and had my choice to make, am I going to help him or not? I was thinking I'm sacrificing my plans here. I'm sacrificing this evening that we've got planned. I don't know how long I'll be caught up in this situation for, but this nice evening I'd be looking forward to. I need to uh, put that on hold now to help. When you give and when you help, there's sacrifice to it. Another reason I think the Samaritan might not have helped is that it wasn't expected of people like him. I wonder as we're talking about this, even as we heard the, the notice on Give Big, whether your first instinct was like, yeah, that's, that's really for other people. That's not really for people like me. And this Samaritan could certainly have thought in this opportunity, this isn't for people like me. Because the whole reason the story works is there was tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And uh, the reason why is historical. Like back in centuries past, they'd been the same people, the nation of Israel. But then there'd been a civil war. It had split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom uh, is the one that is here called Israel, that's called Judah in these stories. And, you know, they'd had ups and downs, but by and large, they stayed on the path of following God, of following the, the law as given, of being the people of God together. The northern kingdom had taken a very different path. They'd intermingled with all the nations around them. They'd intermarried with the nations around them. And with that, they'd uh, interworshipped with the nations around them. And so rather than uh, following God wholeheartedly, they'd taken all these practices of other religions and kind of mashed them together into something uh, that, that was just no longer the worship of God as God had said it. And so the, the people of the southern kingdom, the Jewish people, were looking at them thinking, hang on, these guys, they're, they're sellouts. They're, they aren't really the true followers of God anymore. And there was a lot of animosity. They tended to despise them. There was hatred towards them. Beth Moore explains it like this. She says, our common name for this parable would have been an oxymoron to many Jews of that era. Most would have believed there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's the way they were viewed. They were viewed as lowlifes, they were viewed as scum, and there was zero expectation on the Samaritans. So imagine you're him, right? Imagine you're this Samaritan guy, and for whatever reason, you've been in Jerusalem, you're on your way to Jericho, you're walking down the road, you see the way other travellers look at you, you, see the, you hear the way they mutter about you, maybe they give you a bit of a wide berth, you know you're not welcome, you know nobody really likes you in that place, you realise you're experiencing prejudice, and then you see a guy beside the road hurt, and you're thinking, well, actually, I'm in a position where I wouldn't be expected to help here. The priest would be expected to help. The Levite would be expected to help. But people just look at me and think, no, he's not going to bother. He's not going to help. That's why Jesus told the parable the way he did. It'd be easy for him to think, other people can sort this out. So that gives me a pass. 
So when we've got this opportunity to give on the Give Big Offering, let me urge you, don't just think other people will give to this. Other people will meet those needs. Because what if everyone said that? What if everyone thought other people would do it? Nothing will ever get done. But as well as all the reasons not to help, I think the Samaritan had two very good reasons to help. Actually, the Levite had two very good reasons to help. The priest had two very good reasons to help. Here's reason number one to help. Because there's a need. Help because there's a need. Because you've got a bloke beside the road, stripped, bloody, and about to die. And if you don't stop and help him, he will be dead. That puts into context, doesn't it? Oh, well, I'm a bit busy. I've got a lot going on. Oh, but what if this? What if that? What do other people do? The guy's about to die if you don't stop. And so when that situation is in front of you, you stop. Well, I saw a man unconscious by the road. It wasn't actually a oh, 50-50 decision. There's a guy. He might need help. I'll call an ambulance. I'm not going to go and have my evening and leave him there. There's a need, so you meet the need when it's there. Martin Luther King said, I imagine the first question the priest and Levi asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? He saw that there was a need. So reason to help number one is because there's a need. Reason to help number two is because you can. Because you can, because you're able. He's there. He's got some bandages. He's got some oil. He's got some wine. Yes, he'll have to sacrifice them, but he can actually help the need. He's got an animal. Yeah, he'll have to walk, but he can get this guy to an inn. He's got some money so he can pay to get this guy nursed back to health. He has the opportunity to meet that need. And so he does it. Three ways. Firstly, he shows compassion. His heart is switched on to the need. He's not ignoring it. He's not kind of rationalizing it away. He engages with the situation on a heart level. Secondly, care. He actually goes to the man. He actually does the things that need doing. And thirdly, he pays the cost from his own account. Compassion, care, and cost. That's what it looks like to help. With the Give Big Sunday, we're not doing this because CCM wants money. We're not keeping any of the money. That's not what this is about. We're doing it because we see needs and we want to make a difference. Because there is a need. There's a need in Ukraine. It's not on the news anymore. But that east of Ukraine, it's war-torn. It's poor. People there aren't eating. You've got pastors who are being forced out. If we can support them a bit, they can stay there. They can feed their families. They can feed their communities in that place. Oasis, it's a great ministry we're partnering with. I was hearing one of the teams saying this week, they're currently having to turn people away at their moment of crisis because they've not got enough capacity to deal with the need before them. We want to help with that. In Uganda, this hospital that they've built, there's a need for nurses working in the hospital. They've got nowhere for them to stay. We can help them build an accommodation block so they've got nurses working in this hospital in Uganda. There are real needs. And each one of us can help. There is a need and we can make a difference. Now, none of us can do it on our own. I can't sort out the problems in Uganda, in Gorton and in Ukraine by myself. None of us can. But each of us can do something. Each of us is in a position where we can help to the extent that we can help. And together, 
as God's people, we can make a big difference. So I want to encourage you this week, please would you pray about it? Please would you bring this to God? And would you ask him to give you a heart of generosity? Would you ask him to switch your heart on to the needs before you? Would you ask him to guide you in what you can do? For Jesus telling this story, it wasn't just a a hypothetical scenario that he came up with. It was something he lived out. Because Jesus, in a sense, was the ultimate good Samaritan. Think about what he's done for us as we were dead in our sin, as we were down and out. Jesus would have had every reason in the world to ignore our need. And yet he didn't. He showed compassion. His heart was switched on to the problem. He heard our cries, our desperate cries. He showed care. He came into our world. He came alongside us. He lived a life in our world. And he bore the cost, didn't he? As he gave his life on the cross for us. The story Jesus told is a story about someone who came across a need and who did what he could. And the guy telling the story, Jesus, someone who saw a need and who did what he could. And who calls us in those words at the end of the story. Now you go and do likewise. I've applied it a lot to give big because that's the thing before us. I would encourage you in that. But more broadly, let us be a people. Whatever needs are before us, whatever opportunities God puts into our path to help. Let's have compassion. Let's switch our hearts on to the needs. Let's have care. Let's engage ourselves in solving the problems. And let's be ready to bear the cost to do good in this world.